Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, and we are back again with the Flex Diet Podcast, uh, bringing you everything to help you with your performance and also health. Today, I've got an awesome podcast with Mr. James Nestor. Uh, this is so far one of my favorite books of 2020, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. I really loved it. I loved the stories that he uses, uh, that it was actually based on actual research from institutions such as Stanford and other places. And he did a lot of very cool N equals 1 and N equals 2 experiments in the book. So in this podcast, we talk all about everything from breathing, some of his uh, previous work that he's done, uh, mutual friends of ours, Dr. Kevin Boyd, looking at changes in facial structure related to ADHD. Uh, carbon dioxide is not necessarily just a waste product, more of a byproduct. Nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. A uh, little bit about teeth and facial structure and just lots of really cool stuff. So thank you so much to him for being on the podcast really enjoyed this chat uh, we even got in a little bit of holotropic breathing and use of psychedelics in the past and kind of the new resurgence of that and the science around that so this podcast is brought to you by the flex diet certification go to www.flexdiet.com You'll be able to get on the wait list there for the next time that it is released. If you want more information about the eight different interventions uh, to help you with body composition and performance, or if you're a trainer to use it with your clients, it's a complete system. We cover everything from the physiology to what do you actually do with the clients or yourself. And then also the overarching story of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting, hence the title Flex Diet Certification. Uh, so go to flexdiet.com, www.flexdiet.com, sign up to the newsletter, and you'll get lots of super cool information. So here is the podcast with James Nestor. Hey, what's going on? This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, and we're on with James Nestor. Welcome to the Flex Diet Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate your new book is out. Is it Breath or Breathe? I've heard it pronounced both ways. Well, if you've heard the latter version, you've heard the incorrect okay. version. It is Breath, but 80% of the people call it Breathe. Okay. So what can you do? <laughs> uh yeah, I loved it. I read it and I send it actually to all my clients. And then I have a membership group that I run, mentorship, and send it to all them too. So we used it for one of the lessons to talk about breathing with, with clients. And also, I really like just the use of story and how you tie it in research and of one experiments and then making it actually interesting to read too. Because everybody knows that, yeah, you can get good information from an academic textbook, but 99.5% of people are just never going to read it, no matter how good the info is. So it was, it was a very enjoyable read, too, which is great. Thank you. I had to read all those books preparing to write this book, so I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And you're in San Francisco, correct? I'm in beautiful, foggy San Francisco. That's right. Yeah. And you do surfing out there also, correct? All the time right after this i'm gonna head out into the the stormy waters nice where do you normally surf at out there at ocean beach um that that's my main spot so it's about a 15 minute drive from my house which is really nice sometimes i go down south to some secret spots which of course i can't tell you yeah. about but beyond <laughs> that it's usually ocean beach what got you into surfing Oh, I uh, grew up pretty close to the water in Tustin, uh, behind the Orange Curtain in Orange County. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think that California is this very lackadaisical, liberal bastion. It is not. People go down to Southern California, <laughs> go down to Orange County, and it is exactly like Texas. <laughs> so um, that was a real salvation for me in uh, high school. Actually, throughout my entire youth, uh, grew up about 15 minutes or so from from the beach, and so 
was down there uh, every day if I could make it down. Nice, nice. I just bought a surfboard, so I've been teaching myself attempting to surf uh, using a kite, so kite surfing, which, mm-hmm. um, yeah, trying to walk on a board without bindings is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And I'm even using a kite to try to help support me, not just less, you know, without it. So it's it's been interesting. It's been super fun, sure. though. So Sure. Any excuse to get in the water is a good one. That's, that's how yeah. I do it. Awesome. Um, so in the book, you kind of detail a lot of different experiments that you've done, which we'll get into, including stuffing little plugs up your nose and everything else. And I was curious what your your wife kind of thinks about all the different processes you've gone through for various books and crazy <laughs> testing. Uh, she's just kind of used to it now. This one was Nothing a little, new. <laughs> little different because, well, most of that research takes place elsewhere. So she really doesn't know exactly what I'm up to because I'm I'm out traveling. I'm in foreign countries. And then I tell her when I come back and she, she's like, oh, oh, God. But th- this one was a little more located um, around here, around the Bay Area, around my house. Luckily, we have a, a second floor uh, a downstairs to our house. So when I was doing all those experiments, I just stayed down here. It's, ah. it's like a separate unit and, and had all the equipment. I'm actually down here now. Um, had all the equipment set up right over there and, and had the whole home lab situation. Very cool. Uh, what is the, I mean, one of the experiments you did was plugging your nose for, was it 10 days? Is that right? Yeah. What made you come up with that? And what did you think was going to happen with it going in and what actually happened? Yeah, well, um, I never intended to do this. Uh, this was never something I set out in the book proposal to do at all, um, which is usually what happens when you start getting into research. You start finding those little cracks that no one's really explored and you go into them. But I had been talking with the chief of rhinology research down at Stanford, which is pretty close to me, about a half an hour away. And he's a big nose guy. And he told me all the wonders of nasal breathing, all the damage that can happen to our bodies, our minds, everything from, from mouth breathing, from chronic mouth breathing. But nobody knew how quickly that damage came on. Hmm. Um, we knew that after years, when, when you're younger, if you're a mouth breather, you can actually change the skeletature of your face. You can impact your ability to breathe. You get this posture. You look around and see this all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but that usually happens over several years. Um, and so I said, well, why don't, why don't we test it? I mean, here's a guy who's at Stanford, one of the top institutions, and uh, he couldn't find anyone to test it. And I wanted to do the <laughs> test quickly. He, he's like, who, who would volunteer for this? So I volunteered, and uh, he, of course, didn't have any funding allocated for it. So we had to pay for it, which, which was not cheap. But oh, uh, the, the point was not to really do some sort of jackass stunt you know even though it kind of sounds like that if you look at about 25 to 50 percent of the population habitually breathes through its mouth so so in a lot of ways we were just lulling ourselves into a position that that i already knew as as an occasional mouth breather and that so much of the population knows the difference was we 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 measured what happened to the body and um it was originally just gonna be me and i said no you know, N1 study, kind of interesting, but it'd be a lot more powerful if there's one other person. No one I knew around here had any interest in doing mm. this at all. But I'd been talking to Anders Olsen, a breathing therapist in, in Sweden, who, you know, he, I said, put your money where your, where your mouth is, so to speak. <laughs> He'd been talking about nasal breathing for forever, for, for at least a decade. Yeah. And he came out here on his own dime, lived out mm. across the street from me for, for a month just because he wanted to know. so That's pretty cool. It's not something you would offhand expect from someone who's invested 10 years because, you know, his whole thing is a lot of very much nasal breathing, you know, don't breathe through your mouth. So it's pretty commendable that he would actually spend his own money and come out here because it could have potentially backfired for him, you know, too. So it's very cool that he probably is interested in what is actually going on with the physiology. He's a doer, you know, he doesn't want to sit behind a desk and just accept what other people have said is, is the truth. He wants to experience it himself. And, and most importantly, he wants to look at the real science behind this. Because on both sides of the aisle here, you've got medical institutions who do incredible work, but they're not really looking at this other breathing therapy um, that, that's going on. And the breathing therapists are just like, we don't bother. We know what works for our patients. Okay. We, yeah. we see it every, every single day what works. They're less concerned with, with what is actually happening 
happening to the body. So I tried to walk in between both those groups and communicate what really the science says about it. And Anders is, is very much that he thinks in the same way. And, um, you know, it was it was commendable that he came out and especially came out to to the city, to San Francisco, to, to sit around for 10 days with, with plugs up his nose. I don't know who else would do that. I wouldn't go to, to Stockholm to do that. <laughs> and what did you find when you did that? Uh, you know, we knew it wasn't going to be good. That was clear. Um, Nyack was saying, you guys are, are not going to have a fun time. But you talk to anyone with chronic sinusitis, you talk to anyone who's a mouth breather and they're not too pleased with the way they're they're breathing either. If you look at uh, neurological disorders like ADHD have been correlated to mouth breathing, especially mouth breathing at night, and that there's very clear correlations between that metabolic problems, neurological problems, I mean, on and on and on. So we didn't know exactly uh, because we don't know if these problems, uh, if they would have started up after a few months, after a few years, whatever. But within the first night, I mean, within hours, my blood pressure shot through the roof. Um, that night, I snored for the first time in, in memory. Uh, that was recorded because we took about two weeks of baseline, no snoring at all. Snored about an hour and a half. After that, I was snoring a couple hours. Three days later, snoring for four hours. Also had sleep apnea. Blood pressure was, was, again, so high. We were fatigued, anxious, miserable. You know, the subjective markers, they were important to me because I felt them. But I know that a lot of people say, oh, that's just your opinion. That's not right. real. So that's why we were so determined to have. We had a battery of, of different, uh, a whole suite of different machines here to, to uh, process and record heart rate variability, CO2, nitric oxide, oxygen, temperature. I mean, on and on and on. And th those data to me were, were the most interesting because they were exactly the same for me and Anders. Exactly. He got snoring right when I got snoring. He got uh, sleep apnea. We both felt miserable. We were laughing about it the first few days. Like, hey, this sucks. <laughs> After like a week, we listening to these recordings at night. I mean, you just heard these these two people just being slowly strangled to death on their own bodies, which is what sleep apnea is. Uh, it's so injurious, and we're discovering just how bad it is right now. Um, but but I felt it in my own body, and and man, I can't imagine what that would be like to to live with that for for years. How it would just wear you down. Yeah, and it's funny, I've talked to a fair amount, even just a few clients I've had who I've sent out for sleep studies and have gotten a CPAP, and it's crazy how they report the difference, but it's always fascinating to me how your nervous system is very comparative. So if you ask them, like, you know, kind of how do you feel, they're like, yeah, yeah I'm a little bit tired and whatever, you know, they they kind of know there's something going on, but they're like, yeah, 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 whatever, and then after they get it and they get a few nights good sleep, they're like, holy crap, this is insane. I didn't know you could feel this way. And it's like the same story like all the time. Yeah, well, we're so used to, we're in such a stress culture. There's so much pressure all the time. We're just kind of used to feeling kind of crappy all the time, you know? And when you finally feel good, that's why people go on vacation, their stress levels reduce, mm -hmm. they relax, and they're like, I didn't know I could feel this good. My body could feel this good. Well, it doesn't have to just feel that good on vacation. You can, yeah. <laughs> you know, another 99% of the year, you could feel good if you do some simple things. I really think that breathing is at the core of that. If you're not breathing right, if you're breathing improperly or have some dysfunction in your breathing, you're never, ever going to feel good. You're always going to be slightly unhealthy. Your body can compensate. It's really good at doing that. That doesn't mean you're going to be healthy, you know. How would someone kind of know if they're listening to this that their breathing may be off? What are some markers or things they should look out for? Really quick diagnostic. Um, there's people on both sides of the aisle, uh, people who support this, people who don't, is try to hold your breath. See how long you can hold your breath on a very calm exhale. So this is not a perfect test, right? Uh, a perfect test would be to have a capnometer to to do a PFT, do, do a psychological exam, that kind of thing. But it's interesting to me to find that throughout populations who have chronic breathing problems and have other underlying conditions, I'm talking about people with chronic uh, anxieties, people with depression, people with asthma, people with autoimmune problems, many of them, I've seen people that could hold their breath about four seconds before they go. <clears throat> <clears throat> so if you calmly exhale, hold your breath, 
you have to go into your body a little bit. And if you're not connected to your body, both physically and mentally, you're not going to be able to hold your breath for very long. This also looks at CO2 tolerance. It's not just psychological. So all those populations have very low CO2 tolerance. And we know if you have very low CO2 tolerance, you're going to be in this alkaline state. You're not going to be getting circulation to where you need it. Your body's going to have to compensate. You're going to be urinating out essential minerals, uh, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, on and on. We, we know all that. Um, those tests are a little harder to, to conduct. You know, they take a little more time and energy, but a breath hold isn't. And the longer you can comfortably hold your breath, this isn't yeah it's not a max hold it's like the bold score i think from patrick McEwen or very similar that's exactly right so Got that it. next breath you have to take in has to be this calm you're not moving you're not convulsing right because this is, <laughs> you want to you want to see what's really happening in your body and i've found that this is a very quick again it's not perfect but it's a very quick marker of, of where you are if you're sleep deprived if i've been sleep deprived when i used to travel a, a lot sleep three or four hours my breath hold got so low my body just was not functioning correctly if i sleep a lot if i've just surfed if i'm relaxed i can hold my breath for so long so i, I do think that that's that's an interesting little tool to use yeah it's interesting you mentioned that how it changes too because i read some of patrick McEwen's stuff maybe three or four years ago and played around with it had a bunch of my clients do it and uh, it was hard when you weren't watching someone to emphasize that, okay, if you had to take a massive inhale at the end, you probably push the test a little too hard. But especially with athletes, everybody wants to win the score. So I wouldn't tell them what the name of the test was because the last thing I wanted them to do was to Google to see what a good score was before they did it or anything. Um, but playing around with it, I'd notice the same thing you did when I used to travel a lot that, man, some days would be pretty easy. And you're like, I feel pretty good. You know, that's that's pretty good. And then next day especially getting off a plane flight you sleep you know a few hours less you're just like wow and it would be like a big difference i would notice yeah. too it wasn't like a couple seconds here or there it was like a massive difference you would notice right away yeah it's not subtle which is why if, if you really look at how your body is reacting during those states if you're fatigued if you're stressed out like that's a physiological reaction that will be reflected in how you breathe and and in your breath hold so, um, you know, I have found, uh, and all your listeners can plug their ears here because they shouldn't shoot for this, but <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be like 35, 40 seconds is yeah. you're, you're in pretty good shape. And you know, it's on my good days, I can do 60 seconds, 60, 70, 80. Um, but if I'm below that, I know that I need to stop and, and fix something. I need to sleep more, need to relax more. I need to step away from my freaking computer for a little while and go on a walk for 15 minutes. Yeah, I've used a similar test from uh, Brian McKenzie and Rob Wilson at the Art of Breath. They just do a long uh, exhale through the nose, so just as long as you can, nice and slow. But you're trying to get at you know the exact you know same thing, and it's been fascinating how clients I've looked at, you know, especially with reported low energy, don't feel good. Like they've been to their doctor, they've had everything, they don't have anything quote unquote wrong with them. There's no one for me to refer them out to. And they do either one of those tests and they're just like super low, like they're cardiovascular. We do aerobic tests on them, very, very low. They tend to breathe through their mouth. You know, you ask them like, have you had, you know, orthodontia work? They're like, oh yeah, my teeth are all snagglepuss from hell. And it's, it's just funny how the same stories kind of line up like all the time, one after the other. They, you know, and they've, they've continued to, to line up throughout the past century. And few people have, have put this, this puzzle together. But every time they put it together, then they die and everyone forgets about it. <laughs> and go back to doing things. That, that's why I called it the new science of a lost art. Yeah. And I did not look for these stories in the book. Um, I didn't look for the people who were forgotten and then mm. remembered again and forgotten. <laughs> it just happened to be every single person I was looking at. It didn't matter if it was Yandel Henderson at Yale. It didn't matter if it was Carl Stow. It didn't matter if it was Katerina Schroth. Like they all had the same trajectory so so the idea of breath holding and using that as a gauge for health and the longer you can comfortably and that's the key comfortably yeah. hold your breath the longer you know that the better health you're supposed to it's supposed to be a reflection of your better health in in the books of the Tao, which are 1500 years old 
they say this exact same thing. <laughs> there are all of these breath holding techniques to calm yourself. And they say, if you get to this certain point, you will be in great health because you can't be healthy unless you can hold your breath comfortably to, mm. to that point. That, that was how they, they said it's impossible for an unhealthy person to comfortably hold their breath for two minutes on an mm. exhale. And I think that's true. My father-in-law is a pulmonologist. I mentioned that to him. He's like, I think that's true because it, it's not so much having to do with specifically the air in your lungs. It has to do with how efficiently oxygen is detaching from hemoglobin, CO2 is coming back. So it, it, it tends to be a window into how efficiently and how well your body is working. How do you think that got, for lack of a better word, just sort of lost? Right. You would think that most general physicians that this would be kind of a very simple gauge or a test they would do just like looking at heart rate and blood pressure and other sort of standard metrics. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. It's the question I ask myself over and over throughout the years. And I think it has to do with, I, I don't want to do any finger pointing to anyone in particular. I think it has to do with how the Western medical system was set up. So my father-in-law, pulmonologist, I, I thought when I first started this project, I said, this guy is going to know absolutely everything about breathing. I can just use him. I can pick his brain. I can. He doesn't, and he's the first one to admit it. He's dealing with pathologies of the lungs. Mm. So you get in a car accident, your lung gets punctured. You have cancer. You need something snipped out. You need a respirator. Like, that's who you go to. They do not study healthy breathing and poor breathing. And to many pulmonologists, to many people in the medical um, uh, discipline right now, they aren't look. They don't believe that that how we breathe really matters that much. It's just getting air in, the body compensates, and that's it. Um, but there's this whole new science. I call it new in the book, but the whole new realization that that is complete BS. How we breathe matters so much for our mental health, for our physical health, and and so much more. So, you know, why specifically has, uh, I, I think that Westerners always think the newest, latest thing is always greatest. It's going to be easier. I think a lot of antibiotics enabled us to, or in vitamins that we don't need to eat well. This, I'm, I'm not going to get scurvy because I can take vitamin mm -hmm. C, you know? And we, we realized that that's Vitamins and supplements and, and pills can help stave off conditions, but that doesn't mean we're going to be healthy. Um, and there's a difference between just getting by and actually being healthy. And we're, we're seeing that breath has such a huge play to part in, in, in that. Yeah, I always think of the higher someone is on the survival scale of a certain function, like the more inherent compensations you're probably going to have, right? So world record breath hold, right, as you know, is minutes. Uh, but there's been documented cases of people that have gone well over a year on a medically supervised, you know, fast. So even though we tend to think of food is probably number one, it's probably farther down on the list, right? Things yeah. above that are like gait. You know, how do you walk to, to get mm -hmm. food, things of that nature. And, man, you, you travel a lot, so you just hang out in an airport long enough. And I do a lot of gait analysis and stuff on people, too. And I, I just want to throw battery acid in my eyes because you see people – mouth breathing like crazy, like dragging a third leg, but they're still getting through the airport, right? They're still yeah. alive. They're still upright. Their body magically figured out that, oh, can't do it this way. I'll do it this way. And yeah. it figures out how to do it because it has to. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to survive. Yeah. And, and that's the deal. These And your, your body can get by doing that for decades. Yeah. I mean, it really can. Mm -hmm. And you see these people and they're able to do it. They're not happy. They're not sleeping, yeah. <laughs> not healthy, and their body is just going to break down. Some people are more resilient than others. They say, oh, you got to uh, push through the pain, man. No pain, mm -hmm. no gain. I, I strongly disagree with that. What, what you want your body to be doing is functioning at a state of peak efficiency where it doesn't have to do that much to, to supply oxygen, to, to feed its whole system. You want it to be able to relax so it can heal itself, so it can use these restorative processes that are built within all of us. And I think that that's it's just a key that's been lost um, on so much of our culture. There's so much of the culture is built on like macho sleep deprivation. Yeah. Uh, you got eight hours, I got four, I'm fine. <laughs> man. And we know 
how damaging that is to the body to not get proper sleep. So I think that whole macho thing is really going out the window right now. Yeah, I think that's good. Like I have some buddies who are actual, you know, hardcore sleep researchers and they yeah. would say that they would get these people who are like, I can do four hours. And it's like, yep, yeah. yeah, we get into the lab. We remove all stimulants from them. We put them in a dark room. We yeah. have them do a boring, repetitive task. And he's yeah. like, 75% of them are like asleep within like 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know if you've met Matthew Walker's book, why we sleep. Yes, and he's, he's so he's, he's like the deep dive he did into that. And specifically all of the damage that will occur. It's not if it may occur, it will occur to your body and your brain after doing this for long enough. There's nothing macho of, of, about that, you know? Um, and it's fine to do on occasion. Uh, he even says it's not fun to do on occasion, but sometimes we can't do anything about that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's just to be cognizant of it, just like you have to be cognizant of the way in which you're breathing. People say, oh, it's an autonomic function. We don't have to ever think about it. That's true. Again, your body can compensate, but it's not going to be happy. Yeah. What would you say kind of the, quote, perfect breath looks like from kind of the the passage of air and kind of what's going on physiologically at a just a relatively high level? I think that, you know, it depends on what you're doing. A lot of people ask me this and then I, I told them, I was like, try breathing six times a minute. And then they tell me they went out and jogged, sprinted as fast as they could. <laughs> and said, I could not. And it's like, oh, <laughs> Western. <laughs> like, what, try what harder. <laughs> so, it depends. It depends what you're doing at rest is going to be different than working out. But the one thing is, is to breathe as closely in line with your metabolic needs as possible. So uh, most of us, I would say the vast majority of us are breathing too much and too often. Hmm. And I think that's that's very clear. And by doing that, it's not like you're getting more oxygen into your body. What you're doing is you're just bringing oxygen down to here to the very top, and then you're taking it back out. You're bringing it down here. Well, all of this area where air just comes in and out of does not play any role in gas exchange. So you're literally just wasting air over and over. The deeper you breathe, the less you have to breathe, the more oxygen you're going to get. So so I think that, that it's so simple, but you look around and so few people actually practice this mm -hmm. regularly. So... Um, breathing in line with your metabolic needs is is essential. I've found, personally, uh, through measurements, through talking with people, that to breathe at a rate of about five to six breaths per minute. Don't freak out, people. Some guy wrote me and said, I've been a half a second off, and it's freaking out that <laughs> I can't. And again, you're just like, oh, my God. Huh. So anything in that range, you know, you could even say, Five to eight is probably really good. The point is to be relaxed and to breathe light, slow, and deep. And that's that's really the key. And when you're exercising, I've found, too, those deeper breaths allow you to have a lower heart rate and allow you to get more oxygen and conserve an incredible amount of energy. The recovery from nasal breathing and breathing slower is is night and day for me on on my workouts ever since i learned this i've heard the same exact thing from dozens and dozens of people yeah that's one thing i've been playing around with on uh, rower and just aerobic exercise probably started maybe like in earnest maybe four years ago or so and then the last probably year two years gotten a little bit more hardcore about it and even uh, yesterday i did a little experiment where i'm like wonder how high I can nasal breathe. And so I would get up to, it was like 150 to 160 beats per minute. And I'm on a rower, so I'm watching my watt output with you know each time I pull. And I would change to mouth breathing, trying to hold the same wattage. And my heart rate would jump up from like 152 to like 161. And then I would force myself to go back to nasal breathing, which kind of sucked. But you would see my heart would instantly drop down. And the crazy part is I could hold the same wattage, and this wasn't completely all out. It was like an RP even 8, somewhere around there. Um, but it's so fascinating how mentally almost excruciatingly hard that is, right? Because you have all these warning signs going off in your brain of like, you can just open your mouth. It'll be okay. But when you did that, it's crazy to see <clears throat> how much of a difference there was in heart rate. 
And I wasn't really rowing at a faster wattage either. I was trying to keep that a constant, which mm-hmm. that was kind of surprising to me how much of a difference you can see just running a little experiment like that. Yeah, we did the exact same thing with the Stanford experiment on stationary bikes. Uh, I was also looking at um, pulse oximetry. So we were wearing pulse oxes. Uh, yes. And, and, and what, what was so fascinating to me, so we really started pushing it. I was like, how little can you breathe while working out just, just at 136? I was like, how, how little can I breathe before it gets like, okay, you're definitely not breathing enough. (laughs) So I turned my, you know, um, at 136, I'd probably be breathing 30 times a minute, uh, around there, maybe 35. Um, I said, I'm going to breathe six times a minute on the stationary bike, huge round breaths. I want to see how much of a ding my, my blood sats would have. They didn't have a ding. They actually went up a little. Like they stayed hmm. at 96 and went up to 97. I said, this is insane. I didn't feel good. I'll yeah. be clear about that. <laughs> I was just like sweating. just. <laughs> but that reaction is not caused by oxygen deprivation. There was plenty. If anything, more oxygen was disassociating from the hemoglobin into my tissues at that point than ever because of my CO2 levels were high. I was responding to that high CO2 level, which was triggering this need to breathe. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. That need to breathe at sea level, at least, or or around sea level, is triggered by CO2. It's not oxygen. Yeah, which is crazy. So at the the muscle level, for people listening, they have something called the Bohr effect. Um, So paradoxically, and this like tripped me up, I found this with a MOXIE sensor probably five or six years ago. So a little... Nears device, you slap on the muscle and it tells you, you know, about how much oxygen is being used. So I saw this video of this guy get on a bike, just hammers it. And I'm like, okay, this is an anaerobic exercise. There shouldn't really be much oxygen used. And you watch the sat on the leg muscle go down. And I just like lost my mind. I'm like, what have I been learning in physiology? This has got to be, this has got to be an air in the system. This is telling me that you're using oxygen immediately and then even more trippy was that to offload the oxygen into the muscle you paradoxically need more local co2 to drive it into the muscle and that literally like sent me down a rabbit holes for years (laughs) me too my friend yes uh but when i heard that i was like what what What? you need more more co2 is going to disassociate more oxygen which is why co2 therapies and mark my words if there's any investors out there in the next few years co2 therapy is going to absolutely take off and and that that means like and they used this 100 years ago for, for gangrene, for other skin problems. It was so hmm. effective because you put your your arm or your foot or whatever area of your body needs help. And you put it in, 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 in carbonic acid. You put it in CO2 water. And, and that increase of CO2 will help more oxygen disassociate in yeah. those areas, which is why it was so... You know, gangrene, it's because circulation stopped in those areas. But you want more circulation there. So almost every other country is doing these huge studies in CO2. Brazil, for some reason, I don't know why, doing a ton of studies in CO2 and all throughout Europe. And they found that increasing CO2 levels will help you burn more fat. It can help with heart conditions. It can help with metabolic conditions, on and on and on. So I really see this as being the next... Um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, is going to be CO2, which, what does that do? It increases the oxygen load in, right. in your body, right? It pushes it in with pressure. Yeah, I'm trying to retrain myself to not say CO2 is a waste product, that it's a byproduct. But I have so many years of academia just being like, it's a waste product, you need to get rid of it. And I remember once sitting in uh, a class we took on uh, basically just respiratory stuff, a 400 level physiology class. And the guy next to me and I were, (laughs) the professor got so annoyed with us. The two questions we would ask all the time are like, well, what happens like to uh, free divers? And then what happens to climbers on Everest? Because to our brains being engineering, it was like, well, those are your two extremes, right? Because you've got completely different pressures now. And if you can kind of figure out what's going on there and then obviously you wrote a whole book about free divers and just the different 
you know, techniques that they use and how long they can stay under, again, you go back to it's probably CO2 that's going to be a limiter more so than oxygen per se. That's true, especially at sea level, but but this is or, or around sea level at, at yeah. milder uh, altitudes. But it does switch uh, once, which, which I think is fascinating. Yes. Um, just learning altitude. about this yeah. at, at high elevation. Yeah. CO2 is not, I mean, the human body is just incredible because CO2 becomes not a very good gauge because you're, right. your CO2 is very low. So your body should be saying, oh, you're going to be totally fine now because your CO2 is low. You know, you won't have anxiety. So it switches to start sensing oxygen because yeah. you are, you are hypoxic at those, at those times. Um, so it's, but, but that is for extreme altitude and and I don't want people to get confused. If you're at sea level, I think even up to 6,000, 7,000 feet, I don't know what that exact altitude is, but it's all about CO2. Yeah. And that probably explains why climbers can run into all sorts of issues too. Even people who are very well-trained, very in cardiovascular shape, a lot of that is done at sea level too. So there's kind of an argument about at some point, do you kind of cross over? And if we take you and put you up to Everest, do you actually kind of become maybe more inefficient because all your adaptations are kind of mm-hmm. held at sea level? So you're dealing with a different set of conditions too. So, But Luciano Bernardi in, in Italy did a bunch of research in this about 20 years ago. And he found that that extreme mountain climbers, that if they were to breathe slower, not they got so much more oxygen and I I forget the name of their, of his study, but it's fascinating. And this is at very high altitude. Sure. The ones that were training, it's the magical five to six breaths a minute. There it is again. Yeah. We're able to just, uh, use that oxygen more efficiently, just like how your heart rate is going down when you're breathing through the nose. The same thing happens at altitude. And that's where I think you really need it. You don't want to be, blowing off all that CO2 and, and causing all that constriction in your body. So how do you think CO2 therapy will show up? Because in in theory, it sounds pretty simple, right? I mean, we already have people selling, you know, hyperbaric chambers. I was just at a place that has this fancy bag with belts on it you can zip yourself, you know, into. So in theory, CO2 therapy should be a little bit even easier than that. It's so simple, and this is why I think one of the reasons it hasn't really taken off, at least that is the opinion of the researchers in the field. So CO2 is cheap. It's cheap waste gas. Anyone can get it. Anyone can administer it. And Yendel Henderson, you know, he's at Yale for 30, 40 years, showed it had such a powerful effect on anxiety for victims of stroke. They used to carry it around on on fire engines, Hmm. and it was never disproven. It was never disproven. It's just other newfangled things came around. So um, I think it will be interesting to watch how people try to market this and uh, put the price up to a gas that is very <laughs> extremely cheap, that is extremely easy to administer, and to see what they're going to do. But but thermal baths, um, bubbling baths, which are throughout Europe, there's mm-hmm. some here in California, those have been shown to have a, a huge benefit for people with respiratory problems, people with with psoriasis, eczema, because again, you're increasing circulation and oxygen oxygenation. Maybe those uh, resorts they'll just start charging four times the amount. You know, now yeah. the word out. Um, but it it will be interesting. I've had so many people write me saying, "Where can I get a CO two tank? Where can I?" And I don't don't think that, yeah. that is a smart thing for anyone to do to, to get one of these things in, in your house. Um, but I'm sure there's already psychiatrists using it um, just as they use it 50 years ago, just as they use it 100 years ago. I just, in my personal opinion, is it's really going to take off on uh, the next few years. So maybe at the airports, instead of the oxygen bar, you'll see the CO2 bar. <laughs> I think that would be a wonderful thing if it were to be administered in a, in a safe way. You know, maybe uh, Henderson found like 5% CO2, uh, the rest oxygen uh, can have a very profound effect on vasodilation. Um, yeah, because oxygen bar is a real hip thing about 10 years yeah, ago yeah. Until, <laughs> until somebody reminded them they're not doing 
anything. I mean, it literally, you're taking oxygen in, you're excelling it, ex exhaling it. It's, it's not entering in to your body in any significant way and offloading for a healthy person, for an right. emphysemic of, of course, yeah, of it's course. different for pathologies. for a healthy person. Sorry. It's not doing anything. Yeah. Maybe CO2 bars won't take off. Cause I could imagine it may not feel very good. So I don't know. <laughs> it, it's interesting. I've, I have taken a huge bolus of 35% CO2 uh, with Dr. Justin Feinstein as part yeah. of the NIH research. And uh, it feels awful. It feels absolutely <laughs> That's awful what I've heard. Uh, when you're doing it. But afterwards, man, do you feel good? Uh, it's a huh. big, big difference. And I did not do it with oxygen, you know. Um, oh, okay. Interesting. What, what? It was it was room air and 35% CO2 because he was looking at CO2 threshold. People with anxiety, he he deals with people with chronic fear-based uh, conditions. So I I believe that smaller dose of CO2. I wouldn't do the crazy 35% CO2, the rest of oxygen that they use for schizophrenics and epileptics, which actually worked, people. Hmm. <laughs> and now they're they're researching it again with people with epilepsy. It's like, huh? We did this a hundred years ago. It disappeared. We put schizophrenics and epileptics on tranquilizers for 70 years, yeah. and here we are again using the same old devices. Huh. It's crazy. Crazy. Well, you know, one of your previous books was all about, I think, how to get high without drugs, correct? <laughs> this is probably bringing up maybe where old memories you, for where you. Where did you dig that one up? Uh, uh, the no, old, I almost I bought it off of Amazon, done. actually. <laughs> uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. So that book, <laughs> and this is still a very sore spot, that book was looking at the science and the medical science behind ancient ways that people used to alter consciousness and, and to get healthy. So including some, some foods, some breathing techniques, not too many of them. And all of it was based on some notes I found in my uncle's house. He was a Hollywood playboy in the 60s hmm. and 70s. And uh, found these notes, and a friend was like, you should put that in a book. That was not the title. Um, I wanted to do a humor book with science, and then they named it that. And uh, I will never really live that down, because now people uh, think I wrote a book about uh, you know, heroin and cocaine, which uh, it was actually about taking walks and yeah. you know, looking at stars and breathing in certain ways. But it is what it is. Yeah. And in the book you talked about, you had done some holotropic breathing also. How did that work for you? Uh, so this is a breathing therapy. It's been around about, I guess, 50 years now. Yeah. Um, you sit in a room, listen to loud music, and breathe as hard as you can for three hours. Whew. So um, people have some very interesting experiences during this. I was in a session, and it got uh, colorful. Yeah. <laughs> But the whole time while I was doing it, I was wondering, is this placebo effect? Is it caused by set and setting? Is it psychosomatic? You can't really answer those questions because no one was hooked up to right. sensor. No one was, was hooked up to anything. So, um, you know, I, I know that it has been very beneficial to, to thousands and thousands of people. I've talked to doctors who have found uh, how beneficial it was mostly subjective and anecdotal. Um, but if you look at the science of what's happening to the body, when you're putting yourself in such an alkaline state for so long, you are causing massive constriction of blood flow to your brain um, yeah. throughout the body. So when you do this, I really went for it. I said, I'm going to put everything I have into this. Your hands curl up uncontrollably mm. like this because all the albumum clings on to ionize huh. calcium and so you you and you can't let go so a lot of people say i'm turning into a bird and this is this <laughs> is the moment where i'm going to be reborn as a totally cool if you actually look at the science of what's going on there there is an explanation but people have very powerful experiences i would not take that away from anyone but it has to do not with an increase of oxygenation which i've heard from some instructors right Exact opposite. It's you are cutting off the the blood supply, the oxygen supply to the brain for three hours, and that causes a whole bunch of crazy stuff to happen up there, and which is why people hallucinate, which is which is all real. I I had some some interesting hallucinatory like experiences there. Um, 
But that of, of all the breathing techniques, it, the science of holotropic has been less studied. Um, and it looks like I can't tell you who or, or where this is happening, but it looks like they're actually going to be doing some some real studies of it. Uh, hmm. I have volunteered for this so I can revise the paperback version of the book. I want to go on an fMRI. I want to have an EEG hooked up to my head. I want to do blood draws before and after and really go into what is what is happening to the body in those states of extreme stress. Yeah, because I believe the origin of it was Stanley Groff who was looking for a way to treat patients uh, by not using LSD after LSD had become illegal, which you know back in the 50s used to be used quite commonly for psychotherapy, which seems kind of shocking to people now, but it was kind of standard fare back then. So it was standard. It was being studied at the top institutions. Yeah. I mean, Harvard's, Johns Hopkins. I mean, yeah. all, all over the place because it worked. I mean, that, that's that. The fact is, I don't think it's a coincidence that that mushrooms are are now being reintroduced yeah. into psychotherapy. John Hopkins again, <laughs> and, once again, and they really, really work. I mean, the the, the whole book by um, Michael uh, Pollan. Yeah, Michael Pollan. Why did I yeah, forget that? It's all right. <laughs> um, fifth interview today. This happened. Yeah, yeah. But he showed that this stuff this stuff clearly works. It's just. It had less to do with the reason why that stuff all, all went away because they were done. Those studies were done, many of them in very controlled environments yeah. by, by experts in the field. They went away not because of a lack of science, but because of politics. Yeah. And so and everyone thinks that science is constantly getting better and better and stronger. And it's all based on the accumulation of data. That is complete garbage because yeah. you can look <laughs> at what's happening now it has to do with politics and religion and personal preference. There's a book by Thomas Kuhn that, that said this in the 60s, that said scientific revolutions really doesn't have anything to do with this accumulation of, of all of this data. It has to do with right place, right time, right spokesperson. And uh, so once again, just like you're seeing um, some use of hallucinogens coming back, being used and proven to work, I believe that breathing is is entering in that space in a, in a big way from from what I've heard from the leaders in the field at Stanford and Harvard and UPenn that this this stuff is is really going to come on and it's free so what do you have to lose yeah yeah awesome uh real quickly um my buddy Dr. Kevin Boyd was in your book also and I met him at the ancestral health symposium we were presenting at the first time I think I met him was man five or six years ago and you know we're having one of these side conversations after his talk and I'm asking him, I said, I didn't know him. I said, hey, what do you do? He's like, he's like, oh, I'm a, a dentist. This is what he said. And he's like, I treat uh, kids with ADHD. I'm like, well, hold, hold on a sec. Back up, back up. You're a dentist and you're treating kids with ADHD. He's like, yeah, we basically image their airway and we look to see what's going on. We find if they have airway difficulty that we do a surgical procedure, we do other things and their ADHD goes away. I'm like, how the hell does that work? He's like, well, basically their airway gets so bad that they're restricting airflow to their brain. So they get stuck in kind of a sympathetic type state because they're not getting air to their, their brain and oxygen and can't get rid of CO2. I'm like, this is a thing? Like, like no one has really looked at this? He's like, um, not that many people. So it was very cool to see that he was in your book and you were talking about different changes into the, the facial structure and how that can impact the airway also. So about three and a half years ago, it was almost four four years ago when I was really starting to dig deep into this into this world. I heard the same thing, and I was like, "Okay, so what what quack is that?" Yeah, that's what I thought too. Mental disorders. <laughs> I said, "This is complete BS." So I started interviewing him. I was like, "Oh, I've got a good story now. I'm going to expose this guy. It's total BS." Yeah. So he and and Mariana Evans were were like. Just calm down yeah. and just look at skulls. Just just look at skulls. We're, we're not going to talk about any neurological disorders attached to breathing. Just look at ancient skulls and look at modern skulls. And ancient skulls, perfect teeth, forward face, larger airways. We can tell from the skeletal record. Modern skulls, they look like mine. Extractions, braces, headgear. Awful, awful. Yep, that was me too. Awful airways. So... So to me, I, I was like, why doesn't everyone know this? This yeah. isn't how evolution is <laughs> supposed to work. This isn't what I said. How does this tie into survival of the fittest? They said survival of the fittest is, is BS. 
that's not evolution. Evolution's changed. Like, are we changing as a species for the better right now? Yeah. I look around, and there's no way we are. (laughs) I mean, so far from it. And this absolutely, I had to throw out my book proposal and start again, because I said, this is where the story is. And so since then, since I met them, I met dozens of of dentists who are, they're the people fixing chronic neurological problems. And I said, what is going on with the (laughs) world here? And it's all tied to breathing, all of it. Yeah, and I remember also I did some training with Ron Horoska at PRI, and he has a whole course about just cervical occlusion and your mouth and everything. And he actually started out, he's a physical therapist, but he started out as a dentist. So in like 1978 or something crazy, he had all these weird connections he found with your teeth and how it affects breathing, how it affects your nervous system, all this other stuff. But then he's like, no one understood any of it. So he's like, I had to go back and do the standard physical therapy courses to get people to the point where they can start to look at some of this stuff. And I'm like, that's just crazy. So I remember walking out of there, not really understanding a lot of it, but I'm like, okay, here's a couple of screens I can look at and tell people, okay, do you have this or that? Okay, you, you go see this dentist over here. Not, not any dentist, this particular guy or gal here, you know? <laughs> well, that that's what's funny. It's it's like people are like, oh, I should go see my dentist more often. I'm yeah. like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> They're going to extract more teeth and put, and put you back in braces. You have to go to the subsect of dentists yeah. who understand this stuff. And they used to be 20, 30 years ago, they would get disbarred. They, they would get kicked yeah. out. Look at what happened to John Mew. Yep. I mean, I mean, yeah, he I met was his son. talking He's about quite the this. character. And in, 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 in the 60s, he was yeah. talking about this. Numerous times he was sued by the British yep. Dental Association. <laughs> and he's still alive. He's like 91 now. And now he's sitting back saying, I told you so. I told you 50 years ago, this is what was going on. Nobody believed me. And so it's to me, it's pretty heartwarming to see. This is a guy who just fought at this stuff tooth and nail. He's like, you're wrong. I'm right. I've proven it. And now you see this huge wave of research happening in this area. And it's really irrefutable. And it's it's too late to stop it now. So even though these forces may try to stamp it down, it's too late. It's already the, you know, the cat's out of the bag. And, and now people are realizing how important airway health is to everything. Yeah. And you had an appliance that actually added more bone mass to your structure, right? Which I think people listening to this, especially as an older guy, they would be like, that that's impossible. You can't add more or subtract bone from your cranial structure, but you've got I think you had a CT or something imaging before and after, correct? That's absolutely correct. So I was told we can't influence the autonomic nervous system because it's automatic. It's beyond our control. And any biology book will tell you that. Completely 100% false. Yep. We we can. We can't develop internal organs. We can't develop our diaphragms. Uh, That's what Carl Stahl was told. He said, you can't do anything about it. Totally false. X-rays proving it. Uh, I was also told that bone mass uh, for past around you know early 30s, maybe right around there, only goes down. You look at these charts, especially for women. Yeah. Uh, it goes down precipitously, especially once they after menopause, they osteoporosis. That's why people suffer from fractures. Uh, but there's one bone you can model at virtually any age, and it's right here. It's the maxilla. So again, this was another one of those things. After I talked to Kevin Boyd, <laughs> I started talking to these people who are saying you can model bone, and I said, okay, this guy is certainly full of crap. Yeah. Uh, I started talking to him. He started showing me scans, x-rays, yep. before and after, before and after. I was like, well, that looks real. Maybe he's really good at Photoshop. He's, he's like, well, why don't you try it? And And so I took a CAT scan. He gave me one of these devices, which very gently helped to widen the palate, upper palate, because there's a suture right mm-hmm. up there that can be opened, cracked open at virtually any age and expanded. And when you do that, and when you also have chewing stress, you can stimulate stem cell growth. You can model new bone, which is hmm. exactly what happened with me. I modeled about five pennies worth of bone in my face, wow. which, is a, which is a lot. Yeah. And even more inspiring. So there's a reason why a lot of people are... are using these devices because 
the reason why when we get older, I'm a good example of this, the skin starts getting saggy. We start looking old. It's because we're losing bone here. Ah. And the skin has nowhere to go but right down. down. Yeah, gravity. It starts in the eye orbits, which is why people get these saggy eyes. Huh. So you can actually not only stop that, you can reverse it with, with chewing stress and by opening up that palate. So... CAT scan, uh, before and after, a year to, to the week, I took another CAT scan. He had analyzed direct at the Mayo Clinic, analyzed these two scans, and that's how they found this bone growth. But even more shocking and, and even better, for, in my opinion, was what happened to my airway. When you start expanding your upper palate, you increase uh, the tone and the space in the airway. And so I probably gained... 15% more space in my airway, which is wow. an incredible amount. And the the scans are there. It's like you can't... <laughs> these aren't pictures, photographs. Right. <laughs> it's, these are CAT scans of my airway, of my face. And uh, on a more subjective level, you know, I, I've never been able to breathe this this clearly in my that I remember in my, my whole life. And it's nice just to see that the proof is there in the data as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. So as we wrap up, what would be kind of your number one breathing practice or something to take away for people listening to either do or an assessment or what would be kind of your top thing? Well, a couple of things. First of all, to become aware of your breathing. It really starts with that. So throughout the day, when you're stressed, even when you're relaxed, just sort of check in with yourself, become aware of your breathing. The second thing is always breathe through the nose. And a lot of people say, well, I can't. I have chronic sinusitis, my nose is stuffed. You have to fix that. So that is not an option. As, as Dr. Jack Arnayak told me, it's like if your toilet is plugged, you're gonna fix that really quick. <laughs> so the, nose, the nose has to be considered the same thing. You have to be breathing through your nose. You're never gonna share in really proper good health if you're a chronic mouth breather. And I think the third thing is, uh, you know, there's the breathe slow, breathe less. This is, you ask for one, you're getting five instead. Oh, perfect. Just just nasal breathing for for people who are habitual mouth mouth breathers. Don't go and try to go jogging, and and breathe through your nose. Nasal breathing and walking. That alone, do that for a half an hour. And for people who haven't done this and who have been only acclimated to to be breathing through their mouth. It's going to feel so weird, and it's going to feel so good after a while. You, you think, what a stupid thing. How simple is that, nasal breathing and walking? You'd be surprised how few people actually do it. Once you do it, and this was the first thing I started with, I said, oh, my God, I feel completely different. You know, That's after 30 minutes. What if I do this for a couple of weeks? What if I do it for a couple of months? What if I do it for a couple of years? How is my body going to be able to heal itself and stay healthy? And I think that's really the key. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I would highly encourage everyone to pick up your book. I loved it. It was one of my favorites so far of this year. Um, where can people find out more about you and pick up the book? Uh, Mr. The book is available wherever books are sold, which I guess is just like online now in this day and age. <laughs> no, that's, that's not true. There are local bookstores. They would a couple love left. to hear yeah. from you. Um, there's a, a site called Bookshop, which... Um, you, you announce what book you want, you order it, and then it finds a local bookstore to deliver it. Same price as Amazon, but you're supporting wow. community bookstores. Cool. Um, uh, they're so awesome. So I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, my website, mrjamesnester.com. Some, um, idiot took James Nestor. So I had to put an MR <laughs> in front of there. Also, I'm trying to get better at social media. I still suck, but, uh, there's some videos, x-rays, other things. Uh, instances where if you've heard things that sound just totally impossible, check out the videos, check out the x-rays. They're available on my site and on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook a little bit under the same name, Mr. James Nestor. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you get to your surfing. I greatly appreciate it. And thanks again. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Huge thanks to James Nestor for taking time out to do this podcast. I really appreciated it. I really enjoyed our chat uh, there that he was able to do this before he went out and got in some surfing. 
Uh, I would highly recommend his book. It's my favorite so far of 2020. Uh, he did an excellent job of really cool stories, some N of 1 and N of 2. And then even on the website, he goes into a lot of the references and everything that went into it. So he really did his homework. And I, like I said in the interview here, I sent it to all my uh, one-on-one clients and even for the Flex Diet Mentorship uh, it was actually one of the books we used in that course, and yeah, everybody really enjoyed it. Um, I've had a lot of questions about the Flex Diet Mentorship, um, so if you are interested in that information, uh, best place that'll be first announced for applications and for uh, potential people that will select is going to be through the newsletter. So go to www.flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Get on the newsletter, and that is where the announcements will go out first. Uh, depending on when you are listening to this, uh, we are only running it once, maybe twice um, a year. So it's pretty limited, um, but we walk you through everything of the physiology of exercise, Includes a lot of different testing that I do on the breathing. Uh, we talk about business and marketing development for online coaches, personal development, and then also mindset. Um, so they'll be announced on the newsletter, flexdiet.com. Thank you so much for listening to this. Greatly appreciate it. Have a good day. Talk to you later.